Today, the world is demanding more of products and packaging. Consumers want more variety. Governments are demanding sustainability. And supply chains, they're more complex than ever before. Simply put, companies that make things need to respond faster than ever to change. Welcome to Beyond the Shelf, the product and packaging podcast. I'm Laura Foti, and I'll be your host. Since I was a kid, I've always been fascinated by how things are made. And at Specrite, I get to work with product and packaging leaders to help them spend less time chasing data and more time making amazing things. We'll interview experts and industry leaders across food and beverage, beauty, consumer goods, and industrials and manufacturing. We're going to go beyond the shelf and get a behind the scenes look into the things you use every day and even the ones you don't. Where do the best ideas come from? How are leaders making sustainability goals a reality? What trends are here to stay? And what's just a passing fad? We're going to ask our guests all this and more. So be sure to subscribe and get ready to go Beyond the Shelf. Hello, and welcome to Beyond the Shelf, the product and packaging podcast, where we interview the people behind the amazing products we use every day. I'm Laura Foti, and today I'm thrilled to be speaking with Brittany Orr, the Director of Product Management at Sugar Foods Corporation. She earned her degree from Johnson & Wales University and continued her studies at Kansas State University's Food Business and Operations Program. She has also obtained cert certifications for product management at Cornell University and disruptive strategy through Harvard Business School. She is passionate about the baking industry. I know I am a consumer of the baking industry for sure. And inspiring young people to meet their full potential, demonstrating the many opportunities within food manufacturing. This passion is the reason why Brittany currently serves in the role of board chairman for the American Society of Baking. She credits her career growth to working with grit and humility. She has worked from the ground up with that mindset, no job is beneath her. Man, isn't that something we can all aspire to? Brittany, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Yeah. People may not be super <laughs> familiar with Sugar Foods, but we've likely had all of your products. Can you give us an overview of the company and, and who you serve? Absolutely. This is, um, it's always fun to watch people's reaction when you start talking about sugar foods, either their eyes either light up because they're familiar with their products or they glaze over because there's so much to it. <laughs> so sugar foods is a food manufacturer. We have four production facilities. We do, um, we're the world's leader in croutons and salad toppings, but, um, we basically support every sales channel, food service, retail, sea stores, industrial, um, international as well. And we sell products like sweeteners, non-dairy creamer, crushed red pepper, salt pepper, croutons, stuffings, breadcrumbs, tortilla chips, crispy fried veggies, lemon and lime juice, um, and the list keeps going. So I mean, these are all my favorite things. I feel like I'm a salad <laughs> uh, topping connoisseur. It's interesting because you talk about like holding menus together. And so while we yeah. may not recognize you when we go to order a salad from, you know, maybe a, a fast casual chain, we're likely consuming one of your products. Um, how did, you know, how did you get started in the food business to begin with and, and what kind of ignited your passion? Yeah, um, I grew up in food. My grandparents owned an ice cream parlor in southern New Jersey. So I grew up around them um, as they had their business. And then when I was in middle school, I started doing cake decorating competitions in like seventh grade because I just loved it so much. And I had a lot of opportunities from my family consumer sciences teachers. They put me in the running to, to do a couple scholarships 
One of the scholarships I won sent me to Japan through Kikoman, and I got to see how soy sauce was made in Japan. And that just kind of was my first introduction to food manufacturing, and I absolutely loved it. It was、um, really impressive, and it made me start thinking about our food in a different way. Yeah,、so. it's funny because like I always, I always have a fascination with soy sauce packets. Um, because I'm、mm-hmm. like, why is there not a better way of doing this? Like, because you want to dip. It,、right? Well, no, I'm like, why is, shouldn't it? Shouldn't it be like a dip container, yeah, like ketchup? This,、mm-hmm. anyways, I don't want to get off on a tangent to begin the podcast, <laughs> but that's always. It's what did it's you? What did you learn from going over there and seeing a seeing a facility overseas in that way? Um, it was incredible to experience their culture and see how their process was, and even from that point, talking about like the wheats grown in the U.S. and then the six months、uh, fermentation time for soy sauce, I was kind of blown away. So soy sauce takes six months just to ferment. So everything t- is, even though they've got high pressure tanks and all of this, they're still taking all that time to manufacture a product, and、um, there was definitely a language barrier, but I, I think they. It goes to show that like people come together through food in, in lots of different ways. Oh, I、so. love that. I know. I feel like food is such an important part of of every culture.、Um, I'm sure too. You know, Japan very famous for like lean manufacturing, Six Sigma, all、Absolutely. those things. Were you seeing that in the food production facilities as well? Yes. No. Their facilities were immaculate and very, very organized, and there wasn't a ton of people. You know, so there there was just.、Um, It was very streamlined and very methodical, and that speaks to lean manufacturing 100. Yeah, I love that. So. so walk us through your career. So you had kind of this early love of food and exposure to these interesting opportunities. You started、yeah. at was it Wegmans? Yeah, I worked at Wegmans. I was a baker there for them. I worked in their patisserie. Then I worked as a bread baker.、Uh, I got to travel around and do some store openings for Wegmans, and then I went on to La Brea Bakery. And I was a technical baker, advanced to supervisor, advanced to head developer, advanced to manager while I was at La Brea, and、um, that became Arista. So Aspire Bakeries now today. Wow, so I, I'm a huge fan of Wegmans. I'm from the Pennsylvania area. Went to school in upstate New York, and I miss it so much out here. I'm still waiting for them to expand to California.、Um, you know,、There、so you, you kind of went through this transition of being in a store, operating at that level, opening new stores, then going on to more of a commer- the commercial baking side of things. What are the、yeah. differences in, in in product development and operations of those businesses as you kind of went through the maturity curve? Sure. Yeah, and even now with with Sugar Foods being、um, privately held compared to you know the La Brea being publicly, yeah, from the small business side, they can move a lot faster. They're a lot more nimble. So, and there's not as much、uh, pushback when you kind of like you can get more people to rally around your idea and look at that risk reward balance a little bit easier.、Um, in a larger company, it definitely、uh, more resources up front for the development process was. Awesome. So I, I loved being able to have more access to, you know, marketing supplies or or just more funding up front. But it took forever to get products out on the shelf. So I would work on a product for two two and a half years before it actually hit the shelf. So、um, in a bigger company, it just slows things down because you need more layers of approval, more people to buy in.、Um, so it just takes more time. That must be so、um, hard. To operate in this day and age with that kind of cycle, because if we think about the ch- the changing preferences of consumers, I mean, I think about like TikTok now. Now there's Be Real. Like I can't even stay ahead of the technology that we're using to connect. <laughs> I can't imagine. Like in two years,、I'm、has、sure. the trend already changed? 
Yeah, no, exactly. You could be working on a project and, and just like that, consumers don't even want it. And I think that's, it's all about timing and just being, being able to catch the wave at the right moment in innovation. And I think that's why larger companies struggle um, because they're not able to, to pivot and navigate when they're that big of a ship, you know, so it, it helps the the smaller companies kind of stay ahead of it. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, sure. good, it's a good uh, segue into my next question. I am fascinated, you know, I'm so excited to talk to you about like new product ideas. You know, I'm fascinated by the psychology of food. I grew up in an Italian family, like food is such an important part of the culture. Um, you know, what is the psychology of food, sensory sciences? Can you kind of give us an overlay of the land? Sure. Yeah. So sensory science is probably what most people are more familiar with because they hear more about it. It's your taste, your smell, your flavor, texture. These are all things that are pretty common in our vocab. So, and that's just how food interacts with our senses. So the human senses and there's whole teams literally dedicated to just sensory science because it's so complex and there's so many personal preferences to it. And that's kind of where it starts getting fuzzy when you talk about personal preferences overlapping with sensory science. And that's really what comes more into play with food psychology, which is our behaviors, our actions, our choices, what's driving you to select that particular food or eat that food with this particular behavior. Um, so the food psychology piece is all based on cultural upbringings or um, your individual personal experience. Like I had a very traumatizing experience with green beans as a child and I didn't come back to them until my late twenties. So um, there was a whole psychology thing to that. And yeah, so it's, it does go into play and then you're trying to navigate both of those when developing products for the masses. That's fascinating. So as you're yeah. explaining that, I immediately think to how every time I walk past Subway, I smell the bread. Yes. Every time. And it's Absolutely. like such and a, it with you. who yes. doesn't want to eat a Subway sandwich after smelling? Like it's almost like an awake, it's almost like an awakening, right? Um, mm -hmm. And it's such like a hallmark of, of that company. And it immediately puts you kind of like in that frame of mind. How do you use some of these principles in your role as a product development professional? We, we take into account for a lot of it is what's broadly appealing. So there's some nostalgia effects that people have, um, childhood memories, comfort foods. So during the you know last two years, lots of people went back to comfort foods for that, that's, that food psychology, that comfort of um, this makes me feel safe, this makes me feel good. And uh, so we saw a spike in, you know, uh, just home cooked comfort meals and that type of category. Then when it comes to the sensory science elements, we're pulling in um, for shelf life. You know, I, my husband will say all the time, like code dates don't matter for things. They do. There's a lot of science that goes into that. That's a lot of product development hours that go into dictating what those dates and times are for your product to be sell by, best buy. And that could be a whole nother show just talking about those. Um, but yeah, I think there's there's a lot of drivers when you're thinking about designing a product, how it's going to be eaten, the behavior of it, how do you design the packaging to go through to support that and how the consumer is going to use it. Those are all um, things that we think through as we develop the product itself and then the packaging that goes with it. It's so. it's so fascinating because you talked about, I, I think none of us in the moment realized we were leaning towards comfort food, but in retrospect, you're like, oh yeah, it was so obvious. I definitely was, I'm embarrassed to say, it was part of the bread baking 
extravaganza. I can't yeah. say that I, it was a huge success. I think I should just continue to buy them from the store. <laughs> um, but you and I share a mutual love of bread and cheese. And I know those are some of the categories yeah. that you focus on. What have you seen as the biggest innovations in these categories over the past few years? Yeah, um, it's kind of interesting to me the when for the bread category, there's all this uh, keto craze. And I was really surprised and somewhat impressed that the bakers got in on the fun too. So there was a launch of like a keto bread. Um, and I thought, a keto sliced bread. I wouldn't have thought that, you know, it wouldn't have been something I put together, but I thought that was kind of innovative to, to kind of piggyback on that trend. And I think the keto trend is slowing down. So it might've been just a little bit late to the game, but um, it's, it's still great to see that bakers are willing to take that chance and try and catch the wave. The next one that's coming up that I think is starting to percolate more now, and you mentioned Subway bread, um, the net zero carb. Uh, so net zero carbohydrates for the bread is um it's definitely a hot one that i think is it's got a lot of potential so i'm excited to see where that one will go that's fascinating and then i i'm like i know during the pandemic i went from baking my own bread to being told i need to be gluten-free for health yeah. reasons like is that another trend that you're continuing to see where it's like people are less tolerant to gluten they want that alternative i feel like that intersects with the net zero carbs to some degree as well it does. Yeah. So the, the net zero carb is also like an allergen free. So the, lots of people are struggling with allergies to food. And I think I, for one, definitely underestimated the gluten free trend when it first started. I was kind of thought it was silly. It's kind you know, to me, gluten free bread is an oxymoron. There's no way you can have one without the other. Um, so it really was conflicting at first, but it has it has staying power. It's been around and it seems to be that more and more people are, are figuring out that that is a dietary restriction for them. Um, and it's forced us to get more creative and do a better job of developing gluten-free products. So I think there are a lot better products out there. Um, but consumers need to solve for that, that gap in their diet and they'll find, if they won't find it with bread, they'll find it with something else. Yeah. So. What about on the cheese side of the business? What are you seeing as the biggest trends and disruptions? Yeah, so Cheese is kind of an interesting one. I feel like there's a split. So there's definitely two different camps that I'm kind of watching in the cheese world. There's this heavy push to like local artisan, really premium cheeses. And at the same time, completely conflicting of it is this plant-based cheese movement and plant-based cheeses. The development of them has gotten so much better. I will say there are better products on the market for that. And I think, you know, it's definitely picked up some momentum from the plant-based meats. You know, you need a cheeseburger. You've got to have plant-based cheese and meat. So um, I think that has really helped that grow. I never thought about that as the reason for the cheese, but it makes perfect sense in the U.S. market that an increase Absolutely. in plant-based patties would need, you need the cheese for the cheeseburger. Like I didn't make yes. that connection. That's such a interesting example of like one click away from the trend. And I think for product development professionals listening, that's such an insight. It's like, yeah. okay, if there's an innovation, what's the next thing that that's going to touch, right? Maybe you don't have a direct correlation to that thing. Like you're not going to make a plant-based patty necessarily at sugar foods, but you're like, wow, we could make a cheese for that. We can make a bread, exactly. a bread for that, right? Like what are all the things to hold that together and support that trend in the broader market? That's fascinating. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and that's exactly it is um, you just have to be a sponge to suck up everything that you possibly can, because there's going to be inspiration everywhere for sure when you're yeah. in this in this role. Well, it's interesting because I was thinking through like my I'm a huge I love making charcuterie boards. Oh, by the way, we had Spencer yeah. from Good Planet 
they make a great plant-based cheese. I did a blind taste testing yes. with it. And I was like, I legitimately could not tell the difference. It's that close, but yeah, it's, it's like, really good. I will put a cowgirl creamery brie, which is like $30 <laughs> on my, you know, it's yeah. such like the local craft. And I mean, it's worth every penny. Um, and then, yeah, there's cheeses that are plant-based and it, it can be on the same board and it's not that you're not necessarily doing it for an allergy, but it's like a taste. You have friends that have different preferences. And so it's interesting mm -hmm. to see kind of, I always like to think about like, how is this coming through in my personal life? Um, you know, we've talked yeah, about these trends, it. you know, we, you can ride a wave, but also sometimes these trends work against you. And so you kind of hinted at that, right? Like if you're in the yes. baking division and all of a sudden the trend is gluten-free, how yes. do you think about product innovation when maybe that trend is kind of negatively impacting your category? Totally. Uh, that, and that happens a lot, to be honest. And there'll be conflicting trends running at the same time, or you'll, you know, you'll have a, a great product and then everything flips and you know, overnight, you know, it's, it's not relevant anymore. So the best way to kind of approach that I use, uh, what's the, I focus on what the job is that the customer is trying to do. What is the consumer trying to do with my product? So if it's a crouton and I'm putting it on a salad, it's there for crunch and for flavor. That's what it's trying to deliver. Okay. Gluten's a problem. Can't have the crouton anymore. What else can I put in there to do the same job, to do the same function? Is it a tortilla strip? Uh, you know, a corn tortilla? Is it a um, cheese crisp, 100% cheese crisp? There? It can carry in the flavor. It can carry in the crunch um, without the gluten. And that's exactly how we kind of approached that one was, um, you know, you just still get back to the core of what the consumer is trying to do and just solve for it in a different way. So. And how are you able to do that quickly? Because I mean, we talked before about time. So you have, mm. like, if you have trends going against you, time going against you, like hitting that wave, how do you think about optimizing the product development process to be able to reach that market quickly, but with something that is quality, you know, safe and, and from a business standpoint, effective? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a challenge. I won't lie. It's, it's a super hard challenge because a lot of times our customers are asking for very specific things that they think and know that they want. And then there's um, things that we see coming that we're trying to be proactive about. So trying to balance that is, is one of the hardest parts of the job, but I think we've done a really good job of building out like a, a library of products and focusing on, you know, maybe we don't have 100% of it right now, but let's make sure we keep this close at hand. So that way we can come back to it when we need to. And a lot of trends will cycle through and they'll just have a different name or a different buzzword attached to them. Like plant-based is vegan. It was, you know, it, it, it just sounds better when you say plant-based. Um, and I think a lot of people get caught up in that and, um, Atkins, then, it, you know, now it's keto. It's, it's all very similar, you know? Um, so it's just, it's kind of on this cycle. We, we kind of do reach retread and different rebranded or switch it up in our, in our food cycles. And, um, so we do tend to, if sometimes as a product developer, it feels like you're kind of running in circles. So, uh, we definitely keep a, a good library at hand to go back to and touch on and maybe, you know, refresh as needed. I mean, that makes total sense. Like keto and Atkins. Yeah. They're yeah. so similar. It's a di slightly different reason or, or, you know, metabolic science behind it, but it's the same overall product offering that would solve that jobs to be done from the consumer. You know, one of the things yep. when we talk to companies at Specrite, it's, it's hard for a lot of companies to go back and look at ideas that 
didn't come to market or even find those ideas that didn't make it. So how do you think about creating that scalable innovation library? Because I find that oftentimes companies don't have something like that in place. Yeah, it's it's definitely hard. And we're we're excited to be working with SpecRight to kind of help solve for the, some of that to do a better job of it. A lot of it's uh, managing your own files. You know, you'll have emails that fire back and forth or you'll you'll just have a, a shared folder that you're working through the, with the team. But um, having a real like workspace dedicated to product development and product design and managing all of those pieces in one place is super important. So um, I, I definitely think that's been a game changer for us, focusing on how we organize around the, the work and how we manage the information and how detailed we get in in that. So that way it's it does help our uptime when we we see it coming and or we get that reactivation of like, okay, we had this idea three years ago and it was terrible. It failed. But the customer is coming back to us now, three years later, and they want the same thing. We've we've done this before. Let's let's get back into it. Um, so and then you know with all the turnover of people, you never know who you might have on the team. So just being super detail oriented and how we capture that is is really the key. I love that, and I think too, yeah. you know, we talked about riding the trend, trying to hit that wave. If you're able to digitize that information, especially things like what were the suppliers we engaged with. So that you don't oh, have yeah. to go redo all that process of like, did you already validate this? Did you already go through the steps? And like, can we take a 20 step process down to five if we already did 10 the first time? I think there's such opportunity there. And I think your insight around these trends will always keep coming back. And I think what's interesting is we don't just see this in food. We see this no. in beauty. We see this in consumer goods. So this is kind of a principle that can be applied to, to any industry. Yes, I saw girls wearing bell bottoms the other day and I was like, yes, it's coming back. <laughs> so yes, it happens in fashion too. So um, yeah. I've personally yeah, been absolutely. I've personally been very excited about the resurgence of 90s jeans and shorts fashion. Um, yeah. I thought it was just me, but I'm glad to see that it's coming back. Um, <laughs> what, what is the American Society of Baking and how do you think participating in these groups as you as you grow your career? Yeah, so the American Society of Baking is a professional association. It's for members within the grain-based foods, wholesale baking, commercial baking, and it's not just bakers. It's also ingredient suppliers and manufacturers of equipment, um, software solutions consultants, and basically it's anybody who's touching that industry can become a member of ASB. And the organization is hyper-focused on learning from each other and bringing experts and novices together to learn from each other, to share their insights, share their experiences. Uh, I've been a member for 10 years, and it has helped me so much professionally to grow, um, to help myself with learning and becoming an expert and owning that within my within my company, within the industry. And... Uh, just networking with some really incredible leaders at different companies and different uh, experiences that aren't of my own, but I can learn from their shared stories. So um, I think being part of a professional association is really important for any young professional or even a, a leader in the industry that needs to pass on that information to the next generation. It just creates a different environment than what you have in your workplace to um, support the community out there. I love so. that. It's interesting because um, our CEO, Matthew Wright, was just invited to give a talk about innovation and fostering a culture of innovation at one of our customers. Yeah. And one of the things we talked about was like, you have to create your own ecosystem. 
And so for you, yes. that ecosystem, like obviously, you know, we're partnering with you on the technology side, but you have to go mm -hmm. find those ecosystem of ingredient suppliers so that when some random trend comes up where you need this random ingredient, you, you have people you can go to immediately, Bingo. right? And you've developed those yes. personal relationships with them. Like have, have you kind of, what's one example of like, can you think of some, a time where like you were able to activate that? Yeah, no, there's uh, so I'll see the same people. And then sometimes I'll meet new people at the show. Um, and I might not always be able to work on a project with them right away. But um, one gentleman I've known for 10 years, and uh, this year was the first year that he came into our plant facility and helped us with a project. So he's known me and I've been waiting, you know, I've had this contact waiting in the wings, to, but um, there wasn't a real project until just this year. So, um, yeah, you need to be able to have that that Rolodex, you know, it's a little bit of an outdated term, but yeah, somebody you can call in an instant when the project pops up and be that resource for your team at your workplace or just within the, the, the ecosystem, which I love that reference. It's just so fitting. You really have to cultivate that for yourself and for an industry. Absolutely. So, and I think definitely. that contributes to, again, the, how do you hit speed to market faster? It's not just the internal yes. collaboration, but it's that external collaboration. I remember we interviewed... Um, Sean, the VP of Impact at Liquid IV, and he talked about like they wanted to do this really cool packaging for Earth Day that was like water dissolvable. I'm probably using yeah. the wrong word. And he found like a niche supplier to do that. They built a relationship. And it's like a lot of innovation can come from kind of, again, those relationships and finding someone who maybe won't even have that immediate solution, but is willing to work with you on collaborating um, to bring Absolutely. that to life. We've, we've done that. We look for um, partners that have kind of that same DNA, that same kind of spirit, entrepreneurial approach to business that are willing to kind of take the chance with us. So those are the kind of partners that we want to work with um, on, on a lot of our projects. And you know right away if they're going to be a fit or they're not going to be a fit. You want to kind of marry up their culture with yours as, as best as you can. And that really does facilitate a lot more success for both of you if you can hit that sweet spot. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. I have to ask, you know, we have a lot of friends of packaging at Specrite and you mentioned a little bit, what's your relationship like with packaging teams and how have you seen that change over the years? Oh my goodness. So yeah, hand in hand. The answer is hand in hand. We can't do anything without them. They can't do anything without us. Um, and for so long, I think our, at least our company, I will say, underestimated packaging. But when you think about it, if you really look at what we did and how we grew, we're a packaging company. So, you know, we I think we took a lot of it for granted. And um, one thing we learned as you start peeling back the layers of the supply chain uh, and in crisis times, we, we kind of had to learn real quick and real fast, you know, what's important and how to manage that. And we, we have, we've put a, a hyper focus on it. We've now have a dedicated team to packaging and they work literally side by side with product development because everything I design needs to work for shelf life, needs to work for sizing, needs to work for bulk density. And then the structure of it has to support, of the film has to support what we've promised to the customer for the product itself. And then um, just to even get it to run on the line. So that's the key element of not just making the product, but making sure it goes into the bag as expected. So uh, th there is no product development uh without packaging development as well. I love that. Like shout out, let's give all the love to the packaging people out there. I feel yes. like, I love that you say that because, you know, I've been in this industry for almost five years now and there's certainly a lot of people who've been in it for longer and they 
a lot of what they told me is like, Laura, it wasn't like this 10 years ago. Like packaging used to be like product development would give them something and be like, okay, make it work at the end of the, like they had already figured it all out. And they're like, okay, make it work. And, yes. that, and that's just not, it can't be that way today for so many reasons. I mean, like sustainability is one of them. Like if you're thinking about total mm-hmm. impact of your product, you have to bring packaging in earlier. Another thing that Absolutely. we're seeing that I'd love your thoughts on is, you know, during, during the pandemic, the price of packaging, like a lot of commodities saw increase in pricing. And a lot of that's hit 100%. packaging really hard. So like, how have you thought about navigating those challenges as well with your team hand in hand? Yeah, we saw the the price go up as well as like the lead times for things and trying to navigate that with customers who have become accustomed to you moving super fast. Uh, those were all really hard conversations and reflective moments for us and for our customers to kind of say, okay, we have to, we have to think about things differently and approach them differently. I do think that there has been a universal understanding though. Uh, typically these conversations are very abrasive, right? Where you've got price increases, nobody wants it, but no one's been left untouched by these changes. So everyone's experiencing it all at the same time. So while it feels overwhelming because everybody's kind of getting hit with it all at the same time, at the, everyone's also very understanding. So we're just being very transparent in how we communicate with our customers, um, sharing what we're seeing and how we're experiencing it and just being very honest. So that way, you know, it, the message is clear. We're in it together and we're, we're, we don't have all the answers, but we're going to figure it out and we're going to work through it together with yeah. transparency. One so. of the really exciting things, I'm a huge believer of like innovation is born out of challenges. And one thing that I'm seeing is that this has really made people reevaluate their packaging end to end and say like, where can we, okay, like the price of these things is not going down, but how can we consolidate our packaging or how can we change out materials? And, And in a way, like sustainability kind of indirectly, directly benefits from this. So, you know, that's been really interesting to see as well. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, we, we've gone through that. It's um, from a packaging standpoint, simplifying. Is it really necessary to have two different boxes, one inch difference? Can we can we simplify that? And um, do we need 14 different butter garlic croutons or could we live with five? You know, uh, so those are definitely like hard questions that we've had to sit here and think through. And while it seems like laughable, but to our customers, it's a big deal. You know, they've had their own formula for so long and does it make sense to maintain that? And how can we how can we still deliver the best quality product to them? Um, And all of those little things absolutely contribute to sustainability. It creates more operational efficiencies. It creates more um, ability to service them on time and in full. And um, you see the ripple effects of those efforts. It's hard to do at first, but yeah, it definitely is worth the energy. And I do think there's going to be lasting impacts on the positive side for most businesses that have taken the time to do that reflective moment to simplify where they can. I love that. So. I want to know what the 13 flavors are now and do a taste <laughs> and, do, and do a taste test to see if I could just differentiate between the, the 13. Yeah. Um, yep. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. So, you know, <laughs> what are you most excited about, Brittany, when you look to the future of the food industry? I, I'm super excited about the sustainability, the hyper focus that you can feel as a joint effort. So it's not just like one company is trying to do a one-off. You've got big bakeries and big packaging companies and just this, this overall global effort to focus on sustainability and how we can do better. Um, 
in a lot of food manufacturing facilities that I've been in, you'll see waste, tremendous amounts of waste. And it's always a little heartbreaking to see that, but it, it's been kind of the accepted norm. And everyone's just said, oh yeah, just assume, you know, 3% waste, 5% waste. It's just, you know, it's part of the assumptions we, we, we calculated in, but the, the environmental impact of those things and people are now kind of really focused and tuning into it. So I'm really excited to see how food evolves and does support sustainability. You've got um, these efforts for sustainable crops with uh, carbon negative emissions to grow crops. That's super awesome. You've got all of this green plants trying to do manufacturing in a green way. Um, so yeah, I'm excited to see how that just changes the standards across the board and how we how we get there. So I love that. We're actually yeah, we're going to do like a whole session on it at Baking Tech, um, the American Society of Baking Show in Chicago. It come like uh, March of next year. We're doing just a whole session on sustainability because we can feel that whole momentum of just everyone in it together trying to move the mark, which is powerful. I love that. You know, so. I, th I think you've, you've met our CEO or heard him, him talk, Matthew, right? He was in this, the packaging industry for so long. And when he talks about the vision, he env envisions a world without waste. Cause he talks about that three to 5%. And he's like, it's, it is so much. If you think about the That's scheme right. of packaging operations, any type of manufacturing, like this, why is it allowable? And for him, you know, he firmly believes, and, and we believe this as a company that so much of that waste is just due to like not having the correct specifications. So things are produced slightly off or not received the correct way. Yeah. And like, there's so much of that allowable waste that can just be reduced by having everyone operate on the same page. And so that's kind of, I love that you talk about that vision because we think it can have a huge impact holistically. Yeah. And I do think more people are waking up to it. It's, it's not, no one's it used to be kind of like a one-off person here or there but more people are really excited about it and making it a focus of what they do so i think that's powerful that joint momentum i love that so, what product or packaging trend are you most excited about right now Ooh, product or packaging trend um i'm excited to see the single-use plastics kind of get a little bit more of a check a uh, check and balance on that and um I, th I think that's necessary, but I also think it was born out of a need. So it's going to be a hard one to break for a lot of people. So um, I'm excited to see how that evolves and how we get through that. I love it. Okay. This it's is necessary. It's so necessary. And I feel like every time I use it, I feel so guilty now. Like I got takeout the other day. There were, it was a beautiful assembly of like components of that. It was ramen or so it was like the noodle package that it was like a little Russian nesting doll of takeout. But then I'm like, wow, I'm going to throw all of this away. And I didn't feel as great yeah. about it afterwards. Um, all right. My favorite part of the episode is kill, keep change. So Brittany, we will give you a list of three random products. One you have to okay. kill, AKA discontinue one. You have to keep as is and one you have to change. So here we go. Oh boy. This is always fun. You'll be really good at this. Okay. <laughs> the first is an air fryer. Ooh, that's speaking of trends. All right. Ooh. So an air fryer, salami. salami. Huge fan, personally. <laughs> and then the last Very one random. is ooh peanut butter. Okay, this is good. Oh. All right. Salami, peanut butter, air fryer. What would you kill, keep, or change? I would kill the air fryer, keep the peanut butter, and change the salami. What would you change it to? 
probably a spicy type of salami. Oh yeah. Get it, give it some heat. So it has more flavor. Yeah. I'm with you. <laughs> I'll regret it with the heartburn, but it'll be worth it. So. <laughs> oh my so. gosh. I'm with you on that. Um, Brittany, thank you so much for joining us. How can people follow you? Uh, so I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn and Instagram as Brittany the Baker. So oh, I love that. Yeah. Do you have any of like your cake decorating still? Um, I, I do do some cake decorating, but it's only by special request nowadays. So, um, it's, I, I gotta tell you, there's nothing better than decorating a cake with a glass of wine and just doing whatever the heck you want. But whenever you do it for an order, you've always got some very specific requests that you have to fulfill. So it, it loses a little bit of the, the creative fun. So um, oh, I, I only that. do it for, for special requests or if people give me full reign to do whatever I want. So <laughs> That's not, That sounds very enjoyable. Well, Brady, thank you so much for joining us. And for those listening, if you like the episode, please be sure to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Brittany, thanks again for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Beyond the Shelf is presented by SpecWrite, the first cloud-based platform for specification management. Say goodbye to spreadsheets, share drives, and legacy systems, and digitize your specs in a secure single source of truth. With SpecWrite, you can easily share and collaborate on specs with other departments and across your entire supply chain network. Taking a spec-first approach enables you to accelerate product and packaging development, go to bid faster, report on sustainability, and ultimately spend less time chasing data and more time making amazing things. To learn more, visit specright.com. That's S-P-E-C-R-I-G-H-T.com.